as a reminder, if you don't have a Revelation journal, they are in the back of both tables. You are welcome to pick those up on the way out. And again, one half of the inside is the text of the book of Revelation, and the other half is just journal space. You can use that to write reflections, to write questions you have. If you hear something from the Lord as you're reading or he prompts you to to think about something, that's a great place to write it. And, and one of the things that we want to do with these is that we just keep coming back to the text of Revelation. So much of our thoughts about Revelation, thoughts about end times, thoughts about tribulation, thoughts about rapture, all a lot, so much of our thoughts uh, come from uh, things people have written, uh, YouTube videos, and it's really fascinating if you just stay in the text of the book of Revelation, how it shapes in a pretty radical way your view about uh, as uh, was written last week, the things that are and the things that are next. We said last week that the book of Revelation was written to provide hope to suffering Christians, to suffering followers of Christ, primarily through the unveiling of the person, the plan, and the purposes of Jesus. And in extraordinarily, verse 3 of, of Revelation 1 uh, speaks of blessing. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So if we're going to talk about blessing, and if we're going to talk about uh, the time being near, we should expect the book of Revelation to come with some tips, some tools for spiritual emergency preparedness. Uh, emergency preparation is top of mind for many of us. If you uh, lived wet, lived east of town, uh, the fires brought that back to your focus. Uh, some of you uh, had some pretty uh, difficult situations uh, with snowmageddon. Uh, I recall at least for the snow part, uh, discovering when the snow came and I ran out of my house to go take pictures and into town because I wanted to take even better pictures and was hoping to get a picture of church and then barely got back home and couldn't get up my driveway. Um, and that's where uh, the tree then fell on my van because I had to park it 200 yards from our house. Uh, but anyway, uh, I wasn't ready to take care of myself. I wasn't ready to take care of my family. What I wanted to do was eat every piece of dry storage food that we had in our house uh, the moment that we lost power, and it started to get a little uh, strange. And so fortunately, some of you were very prepared, uh, and you helped us out. And so uh, I don't know if you remember uh, where you were at or how prepared you were. In fact, I wonder, would any kids raise their hand and say that they really liked Snowmageddon? Anyone, any kids say that was a pretty cool deal? Yes, Tyrone, who acts. No. My kids loved it. We slept in the den. We did hot dogs over the wood fire. They have asked many times, when are we going to do that again? And then we say, hopefully never. Now we have some essential tools. We have water. We have uh, some food stored away. Uh, we have a generator. Uh, we have uh, fuel. Uh, and so we have a plan, some semblance of a plan for an event that is certainly possible to happen again. Uh, the book of Rep Revelation is going to give us some spiritual emergency preparedness tools. I want to ask, as you think about the Lord's return, are you ready? Do you have a plan? Do you have the essential tools? Are you ready for that? And, and then 
one of the significant themes of Revelation is that we're not just getting ready for Jesus' return. We're not just preparing for the enormous difficulty that we're going to read about in the rest of uh, the chapter, that we're, we're really talking about uh, discovering more clearly our great Savior who has secured a great future so that we can thrive, survive, deal with what is going to be a great difficulty. And we want to see that as something that is growing faith in us today, not just something that is forward-looking uh, to the events that precede Jesus' return. I want to keep coming back to this theme throughout our time in Revelation that the expectation for God's people is that a life of faithfulness will lead to difficulty and suffering in this life, not just in the future. A couple references. John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Matthew 10, 16, as Jesus sends his disciples out, he describes the way that he's sending them out as sheep amongst wolves. John 3.13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Acts 9.16, when he goes to get Paul, he says, I'm going to show this man, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. Matthew 16.24, following Jesus means taking up your cross. As we get into Revelation 2, the first of the seven letters, the letter to Ephesus, I just want to ask, do you have your spiritual emergency preparedness plan in place? Do you have the essential tools? Are you using those tools? Are you aware of the things that could add greater uh, potential for danger uh, spiritually? If you live out of town, you, you might have had a defensible space. If you don't have a defensible space, right, that only made the danger worse. There are things in our spiritual lives that only make the danger worse. Do you have a plan? Do you have some essential tools? Uh, let's pick up Revelation chapter 2. Uh, let's just start in the first uh, verse, the introduction to this letter. Revelation 2, I'll, I'll read it here. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so let's, let's talk about Ephesus. Let's talk about the recipient of this letter for just a minute. Uh, the church of Ephesus uh, was likely started by uh, some really significant uh, people, uh, Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. Paul is going to spend like two or three years there on a second missionary journey. He's going to spend significant time there on his third missionary journey. He's going to come, and we actually have in Acts 19 and 20, we have Paul teaching and training and encouraging and exhorting the elders. So Paul has his fingerprints, his stamp, all over this church. Uh, we have good reason to believe that out of Ephesus sprang the six other churches that will be received letters here in the first few chapters of Revelation. So they were an effective church planting church. They didn't just uh, respond to the gospel. They didn't just repent and live out faith in their lives. They went and they took what they learned to others. And as I said, as many believe that they were uh, the part of planting the six other churches mentioned here early in Revelation. On top of that, there's this really cool story in Acts that talks about uh, what happened as these large numbers of uh, people from Ephesus heard the gospel preached and they responded and they repented. Uh, previously, they were idol worshipers, and so they had these little carved images and they, they had their 
uh, their religious texts or their religious books. Uh, and the book of Acts says they burned, they got together and they burned their books. And it says the value of those books was roughly, I believe, 50,000 pieces of silver is, is how it's written. Uh, it equates to almost 200 years worth of someone's income. So if the average, whatever the average income is, it's, it was the equivalent of almost 200 years of the average income uh, for a person. So, so we see uh, the people of Ephesus have this extraordinary spiritual legacy. Right? They are an A-list flagship church. They have got it down. Their doctrine is solid. Their life, amazing as missionaries in their uh, community. And when it comes to choosing Jesus or culture, Jesus or the gods that their culture uh, worships, Jesus or all of the festivals that were associated with the religion uh, in Ephesus, they chose Jesus over and over. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. They were so culture-shaking that it says the silversmiths who created, who, who made the idols, the carved images that were used for idol worship, saw their industry decline and collapse. And so the silversmiths stir up a riot to get these Christians run out of town because these people are responding to the gospel. They are putting aside their old ways and living radically for Christ. Imagine what that might look like in our day. People hearing the gospel and putting aside their old ways. So where once maybe maybe we lived uh, for, for the job or we lived for the weekend or we lived to accumulate and possess or we lived to uh, gain notoriety or respect or prestige or financial uh, independence. They're putting all of these things away and putting all their eggs in the basket of following Jesus and it upends culture. We see that they are solid spiritual legacy. Text 19.20 says, it, it was so amazing, it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. They saw the work of the Lord in their midst. I want to read to you now the next couple of verses in Revelation 2. I want you to hear what Jesus says about them. What Acts records is their beginning. What Acts records is the start of their church. John was also uh, likely an elder there. He likely wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus. Uh, many believe that he was exiled to Patmos uh, from Ephesus. So this is just a, an extraordinary church. This is what Jesus says to them. I know your works. The word know, by the way, is far more than I saw what you did once. So I saw, I saw that. It's a complete knowing. I know your motives. I know your heart. I know what's in your mind, your thoughts. I know what drives you. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently, and you are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Six adds another commendation. Yet this you have also. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so uh, that was a, a group of sort of spiritual imposters that had come in and uh, basically what they did would be to uh, undermine the teaching of Jesus, undermine the teaching of Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila uh, in a way that led people to um, live very wicked and immoral lives. And, and so 
Jesus here commends this church for their sound doctrine. Right? You can't know what's false if you don't know what's true. And so they're able to, as itinerant preachers or as people come in with new ideas, they're able to say, no, that is not in line with the Bible. They are staying the course. They are right down uh, the center, faithful to the Lord in their belief. And we see even uh, that as they suffer, they are patiently enduring and they're not growing weary. So they're diligent in the same course, a long obedience in the same direction. We see some key aspects of faith here, right, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Belief is essential uh, of what it means to be a Christian. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Belief is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. They've got it down. They've repented. Another significant aspect of what it means to be a Christ follower. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping with his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. They've got belief. They've got repentance. And they're even living the life. Matthew 3.8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Another foundational aspect of what it means to be a Christ follower is by the power of the Spirit to live a faith life. It doesn't mean perfect, but it means we're actually following Jesus, and our life actually starts to look like Jesus. They have belief, they repented, and they are living a life that matches. The text turns here uh, as we see that nothing, or we see that nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. You are always in his presence, and you are always in his pursuits. Every moment, every season, every day, morning, night, you are always in his presence. You are always in his pursuits. Nothing is hidden from him. And it's interesting that we often try to hide our sin from ourselves and from others. And the clearest picture I can think of is uh, I remember playing hide-and-seek when our kids were young and when they were two and three Uh, They would hide somewhere, and they would cover their eyes, thinking that because they couldn't see me, I couldn't see them. So they would stand up against the wall, cover their eyes. I would walk into a room, oh, I found you, Zach. Uh, And they thought that they were hidden because they covered their eyes. And so so often in our lives, we try to cover our eyes, cover our sin, thinking it's unseen to those around us and unseen to Jesus. Nothing is hidden from him. that's a really good thing. This was uh, something that I just landed on this week for a while and just thinking nothing is hidden from him. Aren't you glad that none of your pain is hidden from Jesus? Like, isn't it cool to know that none of your scars are hidden from him? None of your suffering is hidden from him? None of your pain is hidden from him? None of the things that you've endured or suffered are hidden from him? Uh, if you've been mistreated, None of that mistreatment is hidden from him. I love that idea that he sees all of it. And I I don't have to uh, voice or verbalize or or make certain things known. He sees all of it. It's a wonderful idea. But he also sees all of our sin. 
he also sees all of our sin. And I want to suggest to you that that also is a good thing. And maybe a, a picture that would be useful to you is uh, if you're driving a car and, and someone is in the passenger side and you're about to merge to your right and there's a car over there that you can't see because of the blind spot and this person in the passenger side screams at you, car, don't turn, don't turn, stay where you're at. Don't merge, car. And that's a really a kind and a wonderful and potentially life-saving thing that they do by warning you, by alerting you what is in your blind spot. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if you're human, you have spiritual blind spots. You are a follower of Christ. If you are human, you have spiritual blind spots. And so what Jesus is doing, like that passenger, is saying, there's a car right there. There's something in your blind spot. You want to see that. You need to see that. If you don't see that car, it could be life-threatening. If you don't see that spiritual blind spot, it could create a spiritual crash. Let's read what he points out. Revelation 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The, the clearest picture I can think of here is, is something uh, maybe like marriage, right? And so uh, rewind to when you were young and in love. And I'm not implying that anyone's not in love if they're not young. Uh, but think about a new relationship, right? Maybe, uh, maybe that's you right now. Maybe you have a son or daughter. Maybe you have a grandson or granddaughter in a new relationship. And so at some point, this special new relationship becomes Facebook official, a major, major milestone uh, for any relationship. And then the, the Facebook feed or their Instagram feed is just flooded with pictures of them and this other person. They're always out together. They're always with this goofy, smiling look on their face. Like everything is just grand. It doesn't matter if it's raining or, or sunny, if it's cloudy, if there's smoke in the air. Every day is a wonderful day with blue skies to them, right? It just changes everything. It's a contagious and it's infectious. And uh, it's assumed that you're going to go out uh, on the weekend. Uh, if, if those two people are, are sitting on the couch, there's like no room between them. They're as close as the human possibly uh, can be. And, and we, we think about that and we smile, and it's a, a formula for a, a many wonderful, uh, entertaining uh, movies. And, and so maybe fast forward to 20, 30 years down of marriage. And, and so one of the great things that we know is that marriage can actually get better over time. One of the great things we know is that uh, a marriage that is built on the Lord actually becomes even more significant as deep roots strengthen it, and it grows up healthy uh, and vibrant, and, it, and then it becomes built on actually knowing who that person is, not just sort of the, uh, the silly, goofy feelings of this first attraction or this first uh, love. It becomes uh, built on meaningful and significant things like having lived through difficult circumstances with a person and stayed the course together. And when there could have been a split uh, because there was a fence or a difficulty, rather than splitting uh, you became stronger and your relationship became better. And, and so we know that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the road, that that marriage can be even more significant and more special and more meaningful. But that's not always the case, is it? It's not always the case. And so we know new love and we know mature love, but we also know that it's possible to have lost love. And so what Jesus is talking about here is, is that lost love. Over time, they have grown complacent, right? Over time, the difficulty of the circumstances or the redundancy of life, they have lost their 
first love. And that picture then is of that couple that has been married for a significant length of time and uh, they don't go out anymore unless it's maybe to get groceries, right? Uh, they don't sit on the couch next to each other anymore. They got uh, separate chairs, the opposite ends of, of the living room if you don't cross paths. Um, that picture of lost love where they've really reduced their relationship with the Lord to some theological principles, some academic ideas, not a life-changing love relationship represented by that deep and mature marriage of intense knowing, right, uh, of belonging, uh, of security, uh, of togetherness. They have lost their first love. And maybe the Israelites are a good uh, picture for us here because this is really what happens repeatedly in the Old Testament. You see the Israelites, uh, and, and what did they do? What caused them to sort of lose their first love repeatedly? One, uh, they repeatedly failed to heed the commands of the Lord. That was one thing. Uh, they repeatedly failed to remember God's faithfulness. And they repeatedly failed to keep their spiritual guard up. So just, just three simple items. Uh, they repeatedly failed to keep his commands. They repeatedly failed to remember his faithfulness. They repeatedly failed to keep their spiritual guard up. And so we see this in texts like Deuteronomy as they're, just, they're receiving this message, uh, just traveling uh, in the wilderness. And the call is to remember the Lord your God, to not forget his faithfulness, to not forget from where he has brought you. Um, and, of course, we're going to see that they do. They do forget, right? Uh, Deuteronomy even mentions when you get to the promised land and you're enjoying these big, comfortable cities and these abundant harvests, don't forget where the Lord brought you from. Don't forget who brought you out. Uh, Some of you are familiar with uh, some of the commands that were given to Israel, don't intermarry and things like that. And we're just going to see repeatedly from the Israelites, they don't keep their spiritual guard up. He says don't intermarry. They think, well, that's a dumb law. We can do whatever we want. I should be allowed to marry whoever I want. They do marry whoever they want. And what happens? They become like their pagan neighbors. And and we even see that, don't we, when they go to... uh, Samuel and say, we want a king like these other nations. We don't want to be under God. We don't want to have this invisible ruler. We want a big, strong king that inspires confidence that we can follow. And see, they become like their neighbors, trusted the strength uh, of their neighbors rather than the Lord. Uh, They failed to heed his commands. They failed to remember his faithfulness. They failed to keep their spiritual guard up. And so we see over and over, they lose their first love. And that's when the Lord brings some king in to judge them, to capture them, to take them away from whatever good thing God has done for them so that their spiritual eyes can be opened and this um, fracture in their relationship with God can be restored rather than it perpetuating and only leading them into a worse position. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Let's see the the, uh, the remedy. Verse 5. 
Jesus says, remember, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, consider how you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Keep on remembering. What is our spiritual preparedness plan? Keep on remembering from where you have fallen. Keep on remembering what God has done in your past. Keep on remembering what it was like at first. Keep on remembering what you did when you were close to the Lord. Repent from growing complacent. Repent from not having your spiritual guard up. Repent from not heeding the Lord's commands. Repent from forgetting His faithfulness. And then He says, return and do the things that you did at first. Do the things that you did at first. The book of Revelation is written to provide hope to suffering Christians. Primarily through the unveiling of the person and the plan and purpose of Jesus. And so we should not be surprised when in each text of this book that we are brought back to the person of Jesus. uh, That our emergency preparedness plan is not acquiring resources, food and water and a generator and fuel and so forth, that our emergency preparedness plan is to be tethered tightly, to cling closely to Jesus. And so we gotta, we got to ask the question, why? Why is that good for us? Why does that matter? Let me read First uh, John 1, 9. says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. What brings pain and suffering into our lives? Unrighteousness. What causes us to freak out about the future, to try to cling to control, to be filled with anxiety, to be filled with worry? Isn't it the sin uh, of doubt, of not trusting the Lord? Isn't it the sin uh, of pride that says, uh, I can fix life, I can make life work my, my way, and so I work really hard to try to make it work out? What keeps us uh, distant or separated from his purposes. Isn't it the sin of idolatry that, that makes so many lesser things into the greater thing? So many lesser things, uh, still good things, uh, it could be family, it could be work, it could be hobbies, it could be interests, lesser things. We make those lesser things above the greatest thing, the sin of idolatry. What, what breaks and destroys relationships, right? The sin of Selfishness, right? Other people exist to make me happy. What what keeps us distant from each other? What keeps us trying to strive and strain to be something we're not? Isn't it the sin of pride that says we can fix our own lives? We can make what's broken whole. First John 1 John 1.9, confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that what happens in the Old Testament? They get judged. They don't rise up as a military. They don't rise up uh, with strength. They fall to their knees, don't they? Isn't that what we see over and over? Isn't that the pattern? Isn't that one of the key takeaways that we get from the whole of the Old Testament is that we humble ourselves before God and 
they re- what we see repeatedly is they return to his word, they read his word, and they pledge themselves to it. Not as a tyrannical ruler that they realize they can't escape, but rather as a loving father who they realize had their good in mind all along. Had their good in mind all along. How do we do this? How do we live lives of perpetual repentance? How do what 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 are the essential tools if this is our spiritual emergency preparedness plan to live a life of perpetual repentance in step with the Spirit of God? What are our essential tools? Uh, three simple ones. Uh, an essential tool are the people of God. An essential tool is the Word of God. An essential tool is the Spirit of God. And, and so uh, I would suggest as we think about the people of God that if you don't have the people of God in your life in a meaningful and significant way, it is going to be very, very, very hard to see your spiritual blind spot. They will see them very clearly. They might not tell you and you might not ask them, but they will see them very clearly. The people of God are an essential tool for seeing our spiritual blind spot. Uh, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, right? We know that the Word of God is living and active, that it it deciphers, it sifts, it cuts, it slices right to the bone and the marrow, revealing the thoughts and the intentions of our of our hearts. And, and so if we're just not in His Word, if we're not devouring this, if we're not craving it, if it's not something that we desire uh, and delight in, it, it becomes nourishment uh, to our souls, we become increasingly blind to our own blind spot. Do you have the essential tools, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God? Are you practiced with those tools? Uh, on confessing, confess specifically, confess quickly. Uh, don't linger or don't camp in the mud. One of the things that we have a tend to do when we confess our sin, we don't understand the mercy and the forgiveness of God such that we uh, come to this deep place of uh, profound gratitude and love for our Lord when we understand that he knew our sins. Rick mentioned it when he was up here in, in, in the context of the Last Supper and that even of Judas and what Judas was about to do and that Jesus already knew what Judas was about to do and seemed to even then offer him a way out. What a profound thing that we consider today that Jesus also knows what I'm about to do and what you're about to do. Jesus knows what we're going to do this week. Still gave himself for us, right? Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The call of the gospel is not to clean your life up and then come follow Jesus. The call of the gospel is to follow Jesus and let him do the work of making you a new creation. The outcome, verse 7. What's the promise? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? Takes us to the end of Revelation. It takes us back to Genesis as we think about eating at the tree of God in that beautiful picture of of God's presence and God's people uh, in God's place. And it's all right. And so how do we get there? We want to be overcomers, right? We want to be victorious. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat to the tree of life. Well, in the context of Revelation 2, 1 through 7, uh, someone who conquers is someone who lives this life of perpetual 
repentance, in step with the Spirit of God, listening to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God, and repenting of that sin and discovering the closeness. It's kind of like that picture of that marriage, that 30, 40, 56-year-old marriage where there's so much there's so much depth. There's so much togetherness. There's so much love. There's so much affection because they've been through difficult times and have become stronger for it. And so Jesus sitting in the passenger seat is not pointing out the, the car in our blind spot. It doesn't point out our sin to, to crush us, right? points out our sin to comfort us, right? He doesn't convict to condemn. He convicts to comfort. So as we think about spiritual emergency preparedness this morning, I want to encourage you. What is in your life that needs to be repented of? What have you hidden from yourself, hidden from others, hidden from the Lord? What needs to be brought out into the light and repented of? That is the path forward. That's how we become ready for his return. That's how our faith grows even in the midst of difficulty as we become so closely tethered to him where we confess our sin and we receive his forgiveness. Right? The idea of the gospel that, that we are broken sinners saved by Jesus, made new creations, right? His righteousness applied to our account. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. We're made new. That's not just a thing that happens when you begin to follow Jesus. It's something that we're meant to experience over and over, day after day, as we come face to face with our sin and face to face with his grace and forgiveness. It's mercy that is new every morning. If you're here this morning and you're sort of living life like hide and seek with my <laughs> with my son when they're two or three years old, hiding in the corner with your hands over your eyes, I can't see you, so you can't see me hiding your sin. He sees it all. Right? The verse starts. From Jesus, the one who walks among the lampstands. Jesus is with us. We are always in his presence. We are always in his pursuit. He condemn or he convicts us of sin, not to crush us or to condemn us, but to comfort. If you're here and you are lacking comfort and you've been hiding and holding on to sin, let today be a day of repentance. Get it off your chest, bring it into the light, and experience the freedom. This is how we get ready for his return. It's not something that is just in the future. It is how he grows our faith today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Confessing sin is a terrifying thing. We are used to believing that our worth, we are used to believing that who we are as persons is contingent upon never blowing it, about always doing the right thing, never being the weak link. We hate to be the weak link. We hate to be the one in trouble. We hate to be the one who, who messed up. Lord, we understand that if we are human, if we are followers of Christ, we have blind spots. So we ask your spirit to make our blind spots visible today. Lord, not so that we are crushed by the weight of our sin, but so that we uh, repent of it and we come to you and we find this new life where our unrighteousness is cleansed. Lord, you, you cleanse us of all unrighteousness, knowing that that's what we need. Lord, far more uh, than water and food and a generator and fuel, 
Lord, that our spiritual preparedness is a life of perpetual repentance that tethers us so closely to you. Lord, would you do that work? Convict us of sin. Draw us to yourself. May we experience even today the freedom of burdens lifted as we trust you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. The band leads us in worship. We're going to pray. We're going to sing a song of repentance and then a song of blessing as we really just walk this path uh, looking, reading the lyrics, singing with our mouths, praying uh, in our hearts, in our minds, laying things down before the Lord and receiving His forgiveness and blessing. The uh, prayer team up here, uh, for something heavy on your heart, love to be part of that with you.